Now, uh, because it's so important, I wanted to take a moment and remind everybody here in London, everybody there in Somerset and Williamsburg, Uh, about two really important things that are gonna happen on the same day. Uh, The first one is the Give Us Kentucky offering is May 23rd. And if you've been tracking with us for the past couple of weeks, you know we have you know, an unprecedented opportunity to, to place a great down payment on the future of our vision of God give us Kentucky. And so we're asking everybody to give generously the morning of the 23rd. And you don't wanna miss that day because we got something really special uh, that morning as well that's gonna go along with the day that you don't wanna miss, trust me. Even a great weekend to invite somebody to be here. Uh, also, while we're talking about that, just to let you know just how much, you know, all of our churches, even the newest one believes in this. A couple of weeks ago, our Middlesbrough campus, which got delayed a bit because of COVID in 2020, uh, the core group has been meeting. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, they had their first core group meeting since uh, post-COVID, you know, and uh, 20 people were there. And here's, here's, here's something equally as impressive. 20 people there, $30,000 offering uh, towards the future of our church. So that's, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So if we keep that same proportion, we're gonna be just fine. So uh, lighten up folks, all right, lighten up. And then the Sunday night, night of worship, May 23rd at six o'clock. Again, you wanna be here uh, at all of our campuses. It's gonna be incredible. Now, today I wanna ask you as we launch in this series, I I want you to think about something. I want you to imagine something with me. Now I know a lot of you, you, you've given up your imagination and you've not imagined uh, very much since childhood, but I I want you to tap into your ability to imagine something with me. And and what I'm gonna ask you to imagine, it's not gonna be easy for you to do. It's not gonna be easy because of who you are and where you live and when you live where you live. Uh, It's not gonna be an easy thing to imagine, but what I'm gonna ask you to imagine and think about, it, it really does, it begins with once upon a time. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, and this is not a fairy tale, but a long, long time ago in history. I want you to think about this. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as a Christian. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as a follower of Jesus. No one, nowhere. There was no such thing as a Christian. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as the church. There was not a church anywhere on this planet. There was no such thing as a Christian and there was no such thing as the church. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as love your neighbor as yourself. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as do for others what you would want others to do for you. Once upon a time, there was no such idea as if you wanna be the greatest of all, then go be the servant of all. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was no such notion that said, what shall it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world, but lose their soul? Once upon a time, no one had ever heard of a God who was supposedly the friend of sinners. Once upon a time, there was no such thing as for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There was no such thing as neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. No such thing as in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. There was no such thing as come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest because my burden is easy. My burden is light. 
There was no such thing as it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Once upon a time, no one had ever heard words like greater love has no man than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friends. No one had ever been told that you are the salt of the earth or you are the light of the world. No one had ever heard such an invitation such as whosoever believes or whosoever will or whoever is thirsty, let them come. No one had ever heard such an idea that God is love or thought of our Father who are in heaven. No one had ever been taught love your enemy or forgive one another when you do wrong to each other. Be merciful to each other as your Father in heaven has been merciful to you. No one had ever heard the words, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Once upon a time, that world didn't exist yet. Once upon a time, there was only a world where compassion was condemned. Immorality was celebrated. Equality was rejected. Women and children dehumanized, power idolized, abuse advocated, and racism normalized. That was the world once upon a time. Once upon a time, the world lived by the original golden rule. You know what the original golden rule was, right? The person with the most gold makes the rules. That was the original golden rule. And once upon a time, that was status quo. Once upon a time, that's the way it was. Once upon a time, I know it's hard for us to think about this being part of the West and being part of the 21st century Christian movement. But once upon a time, inequality was self-evident. Once upon a time, the, accept the acceptance of slavery, it was self-evident. Once upon a time, that some people had less value than other people based on their skin color or their, birth, their origin of birth, that was self-evident. Once upon a time, babies were nothing but property, and that was the self-evident thinking of the day, property, be, property to be kept or discarded. Once upon a time, the sick, the deformed, the handicapped, it was self-evident that they were expendable. Once upon a time, revenge was honorable. Mercy was considered a weakness, and that was what was self-evident. It was better to be greedy than to be generous. And to forgive was not a better way of life. Once upon a time, power, it was better to have it than it was to have purpose. Once upon a time. Then Jesus showed up. And he did what he did. And he said what he said. He died, he was buried, he was raised, and he was seen. He was seen by his disciples. He was seen by up to 500 at one particular instance. And the disciples who walked away from Golgotha on Friday faithless in just a few days would find an unshakable faith when they saw the Jesus that had died on Calvary's cross alive once again. And everything about everything after the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the first century, everything about everything changed and everything about everything started to change. And Jesus would spend the next 40 days, 40 days with his disciples and with his closest friends. 
And Luke called those days undeniable proofs because we saw his scars. We touched him. The disciples ate with him. They had conversations with him. And for 40 days, Jesus confirmed his resurrection to them over and over and over again. And then at the end of those 40 days, Jesus took his disciples outside of Jerusalem, took them to a mount called Olivet. And Matthew, who was one of the original followers of Jesus, who was a tax collector, who had been barred by religion from the temple, who was not allowed to participate in worship, who had been told all of his life, God doesn't love you and God has no place for you. Jesus had invited him to follow him while he was here on this earth. And Matthew records what happened when Jesus, after 40 days, took them outside the city. Matthew records it this way. He said, then the 11, and Matthew was one of the 11. Everybody say 11. 11. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And then Jesus came to them and Jesus said to them, all authority, not some, not most, but all authority because I am the one who died. I'm the one who was buried. I'm the one who has been raised. I conquered sin, sorrow, and death. I have all authority, which means I'm in the captain's chair, which means I'm in charge, which means I'm the head of this thing, which means I get to call the play, which means I'm in control. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And because I have all authority, he says, therefore, because I have all authority, Go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to go make disciples of all people in all nations, of all people in all nations. That's what I want you to do because I have all authority. That's what I'm telling you to do, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And we're gonna be doing that in just a few moments, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here's just a side note. When we baptize in just a few minutes from now, I want you to think about the fact that we have been doing that very thing since Jesus told the very first disciples there on the mountain that day. I want you to go baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, that whole forgive, that whole love your enemy and bless them. All of those things do for others what you would have them do for you. I want you to teach others what I have told you and what I have taught you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now we've heard those words. If we've been in church any time at all, we've heard those words quite a few times almost to the point that we have gotten desensitized to those words. We have lost the weightiness of those words, the significance of those words. But I want you to think about something, maybe perhaps in a brand new way about what Jesus did that day to those first Christians, to those first disciples. Jesus gave them a purpose, but no plan. He told them to go. And he told them what to do, but he did not tell them how to do it. And that's a big deal because that's pretty freeing for churches all around the world. He says, essentially, I want you to go figure out how to do this best. And it's gonna look different depending on who you are and where you are and when you live there. I I want you to be a people. If you're gonna follow me, I want you to be a people. Driven by purpose, governed by context. Driven by purpose, governed by context. So what it looks like in the 21st century West 
It may not look the same in the 21st century Sub-Saharan Africa. It may not look the same in the Far East or the Near East or the Middle East. It may not look the same everywhere. Some churches may decide to do it different from other churches. And Jesus would say, that's okay. There's freedom for that. You may have lights and fog and bands, or you may have robes and choirs, and you may wear suits, and there may be chandeliers and red carpet, or it may be so dark you don't know if there's carpet or not. He said, but that's okay, because I'm giving you a purpose, but I'm not giving you a plan, because I want you to be able to go figure this out for yourself. There's no one right way to accomplish the purpose. That's the reason we don't wanna be a church that looks down on other churches. We don't care how you decide to do it. We just want you to do it. Amen. Don't judge us for how we do it. Just celebrate that we're trying to do it. It's like Jesus was saying to Christians all around the world, anything short of sin, anything short of sin's in play. So whatever it takes, go all out, be all in, all the way. Now, imagine what it was like for one of the 11. Now, for those of you who are sports challenged, that's a starting football team. Uh, that's a starting five on the basketball court with six on the bench. 11, I, I mean, 11 people. Some of you, you've had so many kids, you almost drove with that many people to church today. So 11 people, 11 people. Imagine when Jesus looked at them that day and said, I want you to go to all the world and make disciples. Imagine how daunting it felt. Just try to think about it for a moment. Just imagine if Jesus showed up today right up here and said, I want you all, I want the creatures to go. I want you to go to all the world and make disciples. I mean, we have planes and we have trains and we have automobiles and we have social media, but it, it, would, it would feel a bit daunting. And had the 11 that day weighed the possibilities? of what it may cost them? Had they weighed the probabilities of their success or failure, they may have never started. They may have never done anything. But Jesus said, go to all the world. To a group of people who had probably never been outside of Palestine. And I doubt for the 11 that nothing felt more improbable, implausible, and downright impossible than Jesus saying, go to all the world and of all the nations and all the people in those nations and make disciples because they had no money, they had no territory, they had no army, and they had no majority. So how in the world could they do what Jesus was asking them to do? But yet they believed on some level that they could do what Jesus had told them to do. They believed that they could change the world. Luke records what happened next. It says, after the 11 left, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were all staying. And he says, let me give you a roll call of some of the people that were there. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And what's interesting is they all differed in politics. They all had a different vision of the way the government was supposed to be and the way the world was supposed to look. Some of them had been political assassins, political extremists. Some had been small business owners. Some had been fishermen. Some had been tax collectors. 
And so there they all, they all went back to Jerusalem and Luke is really quick and clear to say, they all joined together constantly, despite their politics, despite the way that they philosophically saw the world or how they had experienced the world. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus with his brothers. And Luke says that they went into this place called the upper room and they waited and they prayed, they waited and they prayed, they waited and they prayed. For around 10 days, Jesus had been with them for 40. They went back to Jerusalem and spent the next 10 days. And on the 10th day, it was the feast of Pentecost. And Luke says this, he says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And then soon something supernatural happened, something that had never happened before in all of human history. The spirit of God descended in such a way that it had never descended before. And there was the sound of a mighty Russian wind. And those disciples that went in, knowing what Jesus had told them to do, on that 10th day, the day of Pentecost, they emerged not as a group of 120, but they emerged that day as the church. It was the first day of the church in human history. And Luke records this as then, when they emerged as the church, then Peter stood up with the 11, there they are again, stood up with the 11, raised his voice. He addressed the crowd, the very people that had put Jesus to death 50 or so days before. And he looked at them and he preached, Jesus crucified and Jesus resurrected from the dead. And he told them to repent of their sin and trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as the old saying goes, and the rest Amen. is history. Amen. History, not a fairy tale, not once upon a time in a land, land far away that never existed, but once upon a time in history. It's the story of the 11 that became the 120 that on the day of Pentecost saw 3,000 swept up into the church, that a few days later saw 5,000 swept up into the church, that in just a few days from there, the very group of people that were said to have filled all of Jerusalem with the story and the doctrine of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. It was the story of those who under the pressure and the weight and the pain of persecution, they fled Jerusalem and went into Judea and then to Samaria and kept going until one day they could go no further. It was the group of people who that in less than 30 years time, 43, in less than 30 years time, you can think about what 30 years means for you. In less than 30 years time, they became known as catalysts of change. And this was their reputation by the time you get to Acts 17. Those who have turned the world upside down, they've come here also. Those Christians, the church, the way, that religious sect who follows that Nazarene carpenter, they have turned the world upside down. It's the story of a group of men and women and children, just like you, just like us, that started a movement, that sparked a revolution, that would topple an empire and eventually transform the world to the world that many of us find normal today, that once upon a time 
did not exist. A group of men and women who reversed the culture and course of thousands of years of human history. They turned the world upside down and all of the sudden, as if seemingly overnight, compassion began to be celebrated. Morality began to be championed. Equality began to be established. Power was seen as something to be leveraged for those who don't have power for their good. Enemies were to be forgiven and blessed. And all of a sudden people began to think of their neighbors, not as those who just spoke their language or were a part of their race or tribe or their fellow citizens. But all of a sudden there was a group of people who looked out and saw all of humanity as their neighbor. There was a group of people changing the world just as Jesus had told them to do. And it's so normal to us, we don't realize how big of a miracle it was. Jordan Peterson, who I believe and many believe to be one of the single greatest intellects of the past few generations and perhaps a handful of the greatest intellects of our generation for sure, and whether you agree with his writings or his lectures or his positions or not, in his book, 12 Rules for Life, he says something that I want you to hear it from him. This is what he says. He says, when thinking on Christianity, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. Christianity insisted that even the king was one among many. For something so contrary to all apparent evidence, because the otherwise had been self-evident, the opposite had been self-evident. For something so contrary to all apparent evidence to find its footing, the idea that worldly power and prominence were indicators of God's particular favor, well, that had to be radically de-emphasized. In consequence, the metaphysical conception of the implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds, impossible odds, as the fundamental presupposition of Western law and society. So what we would say today is self-evident, what the founders of this nation would put in writing as self-evident was once upon a time, not even close to being self-evident. That was not the case in the world in the past. It is in fact, nothing short of a miracle. And he says, and we should keep that fact firmly before our eyes that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious revelation such that the ownership and the absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. It was the Christians that objected to infanticide, to prostitution, to the principles that might means right. It insisted that women were as valuable as men. It demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. And then listen to this. All of this was asking the impossible, but it happened. Because once upon a time, a group of Christians refused to leave the world the way they found it. They took their purpose seriously. They woke up every day and they looked for opportunities to invite other people into the kingdom of God. They understood that everybody had been invited in. 
no matter who, no matter what, no matter where, no matter when, that everybody had been invited into the kingdom of God and every day they looked for opportunities to start conversations, to build relationships, to invite people in. And they carried that invitation all the way. And it reached you and I generations later. What made the difference for them? How did they do it? Well, I think there were many things. But for just a few minutes, there's one particular thing that I just wanna zero in on that I think made the difference for them and I think it just might make the difference for us. It may be the thing that the 21st century church in the West, the 21st century church in America, perhaps it may be the thing that we've lost. Maybe it's the thing that you've lost. Maybe it's the thing that I've lost. Maybe it was something that I had once upon a time that you had once upon a time that we had once upon a time, but maybe somewhere along the way we lost it, but it's the thing they had. It was urgency. Urgency. Everybody say urgency. Urgency. And we know what it is, right? Urgency is when something of great importance calls for immediate attention and swift action. That's urgency. When something of great importance calls for immediate attention and swift action. And I think that's what made the difference for the first Christians. What was important? What Jesus said was most important. It felt most urgent. Now, all of us we know, if you're a parent, if you, you, know, you work somewhere, you, you just know this. If you've lived life, you, you, you've experienced this to be true. Not everything that feels urgent is important. Not everything that feels urgent is important. And you also know that not everything that is important, it doesn't always feel urgent. But when we can bring both into alignment, when what is most important begins to feel most urgent, when we can bring that into alignment, amazing things can happen. And that's what the first Christians did. They brought what was most important into alignment with what felt most urgent. And I think they learned it from Jesus. Jesus. You know, we don't think of him but, this way, but he, he lived his life here on earth, his, his ministry with urgency. Matter of fact, this, this, is, this is what Matthew said. From the time that Jesus showed up, he, he began to preach, repent, change your mind, turn around, come back. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The idea is that the kingdom has come so near. Now is the time, today is the day. Come on, get in on this. God is doing something in your midst. Come be a part of it, come on. Uh, Jesus one day would look at a bunch of people who were hurting themselves and hurting other people because of sin. And he said, look, he looked at his disciples and said, look at them. They look like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he had compassion on them. He wasn't angry with them, he had compassion on them. And then he looked at his disciples and said, you see all these people, they're like a field that's ready for harvest. They're ready, it's right now. If we miss the season of harvest, we're gonna miss the harvest. Now is the time of harvest. But we've got too few workers. We need more workers because the harvest is so great. He was saying, this is urgent. If we don't get the harvest while we can get it, if, if we don't get it while it's there, it's in front of us, then we're gonna, we're gonna miss it. If we don't work while it's day, he said in John chapter nine, if we don't work while it's day, the night's gonna come when we can't do anything. So it's urgent. Urgency. 
You see, having urgency precedes making a difference. People who make a difference in any particular area, somewhere you examine their story, you examine the history of it. They felt a sense of urgency. The development of a medication, the development of a vaccine, the development of a treatment, the development of this, the development of that, the progress. There was a sense of urgency. Because when we don't have urgency, what happens? We settle, we get stuck, we opt for status quo. We sit on our laurels, we forfeit our potential. We squander our opportunity without urgency, wherever it is, without urgency, we fall prey to procrastination. We just delay, we neglect, we get distracted. Without urgency, we're like the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. He failed to work the fields when it was time to work the fields. And when harvest time came, he looked for a harvest and there was no harvest to be had because he had no sense of urgency and he missed his opportunity. And that's the great thing about urgency. I think that's what the first Christians had, urgency, because urgency drives us to action. It gets us moving. Otherwise, we end up neglecting what's most important. We'll pay attention to lesser important things. But when you have urgency, you give attention to what is most important and you act accordingly. Without urgency, we get so distracted, we end up drifting away by, you know, towards lesser things and away from the most important things. That's what happens, we get distracted. And, and sometimes it's good things, sometimes it's important things, it's just not the most important things. I believe, and I love Christian history and I love reading through the book of Acts, I think that when you read through there, it's, 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 it's evident that the first Christians, they refused to get distracted. They weren't perfect and they weren't without fault and they were just as human as we were. But by and large, they refused to get distracted by some of the things that Christians can get distracted by. Tradition, preference, drama, policy, methods, <laughs> politics. You know, just go on. See all the things that are distracting Christians today. In 21st century Western Hemisphere America, all the things that have us distracted, all the news bulletins which take our passion, which takes our energy, and all the things that we rail against and go on about. And it feels important. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel worthwhile. It makes us feel like we're standing up and being heard and being counted. But what if, what if it's just a slick, sly trick of the enemy? to distract us with good things that keep us from doing the best thing. Jesus made it clear, the mission matters most. The mission matters most. Let's all say that together. The mission matters most. You know what? It matters more than Trevor Keith Barton. And when I'm gone and when I'm dead and when God has got me, wherever God has got me up there, somewhere, wherever, and I'm not, I don't have any plans, but, you heard that, Lord. Don't call me too soon. I'm ready, but not today. <laughs> well, I am, but you don't have to take advantage of it. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than the way you want church to be, the way you want church to look. It's bigger than making sure that all the I's that you want dotted and all the T's that you want crossed and the same for me. It's more important than that. The mission matters most. It mattered most to the first Christians. And their sense of urgency about what mattered most, 
It led them to believe that we've, we, we have to do something. Urgency allowed them to believe that we can do something. And urgency actually moved them to actually do something. Because knowing isn't enough, believing isn't enough, being willing isn't enough, praying just isn't enough. Sooner or later, we have to do something. And here's something to think about. We are all here today. We are all here today because they did something. They didn't quit, they didn't walk away, they didn't get distracted, they didn't get their feelings hurt, they didn't suck their thumb, they didn't take their ball and go home. They didn't ignore what Jesus said. They did hard things. They did hard things. They achieved great things. And they changed the world. 21st century Christians in America, we don't want to do hard things. We want it to be easy. We want it to be convenient. We want it to be drive through. We want it like Burger King. Have it our way. And we're spoiled and we've gotten soft and we've lost some grit and we've lost some passion. And truth be told, too many Jesus followers live most every day without any sense of purpose that Jesus spoke over their life that day to the first disciples about go and make. The first disciples, the first Christians, they upset their lives for the sake of somebody else. They abandoned comfort to varying degrees for the sake of someone else. They traveled far. They did what was inconvenient. Some of them even gave their own life. Are you kidding me? So are you trying to guilt us? Not really, but if it does, I'm okay with it. They gave their lives. They picked up and they moved. They gave, they prayed, they invited, they showed up. They did the hard thing. And we're all here today because of it. They remind us, or let me just say, they remind me that when we align our passion with our purpose and live it out with urgency, change happens. That's when things change. When we align our passion with our purpose, not the purpose that I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm here for, but the purpose that Jesus spoke. When I align my passion and my purpose, no matter what I do for a living, no matter what socioeconomic bracket that I'm a part of, when I align my passion and my purpose and I live it out with urgency, that's when things change. And for Christians, this sense of urgency about passion and purpose, that's just simply called living out our theology. Trevor, do we still believe that Jesus is coming back one day? I do. Do we still believe that everyone spends forever somewhere? I still do. Do we believe in a place called heaven? And do we believe in a place that Jesus called hell? I do. Do we believe that whosoever can, they can respond to God's free gift of grace, be a recipient of forgiveness and new life? Yes. Then what are we waiting on? What are we waiting on? One philosopher said the problem is we think we have time. 
that we may not have. Some of us have friends and loved ones and we have no idea where they stand with God. And there's no sense of urgency, none. It's business as usual. It's the rat race. Let's make some more money. Let's do some more. Let's put some more into the calendar. Let's, Let's join another group. Let's join another club. Let's go do this, let's go do that. Let's do this, let's do that. With no sense of urgency about what Jesus called us to do. The first Christians believed that Jesus was coming and they got busy. Our theology, what we say we believe, it demands a sense of urgency. It demands a sense of urgency, it just does. The brevity of life demands urgency. Listen, life is short and it goes by faster and faster and faster and faster. And this is all I've got. This is my one shot. This is my one walk across the stage of life. This is no dress rehearsal. This is it. This is the game. This is the big show. This is the only opportunity I have, the only opportunity you've got to get it right. Get what right? The most important thing right. It's our only shot. This is it. There is no second chances. This is the one life that we get in this time and place and space. This is our season. This is our opportunity. We've been put in the game and the play has been called. What are we gonna do about it? You see, the need of the hour demands urgency. The need of the hour demands urgency. Just look around. Look around in our community. Look around in our state. Look around in our nation. Look around at our world. And you know what? The need is great. You know what the world needs? The world needs hope. You know what the world needs? The world needs grace. You know what the world is thirsty for? Grace. The world is thirsty for grace and they don't even know it. The world is thirsty for truth and they don't even know it because the world is thirsty for Jesus and they don't even know it. The need of the hour demands urgency. Since last year in this country, since last year in this country, a third, a third, a third, of the American church has disappeared in a year's span. 30% of the church has disappeared. They're not watching online. They're not attending a local church. They're not giving. They're, They're not in any measurable way a part of any church. And they've just disappeared. The need is great. For the first time in measuring history, there are less practicing Christians in America than 50%. One in five in this country alone are called nuns, non-affiliated. They claim no faith. And it makes them as large of a group as evangelicals and Catholics in this nation. And we wonder, we wonder why the trajectory of things are the way they are. Seven in 10 are still walking away from faith by the age of 21. Half of evangelicals are gonna die in the next 20 years. There's a real possibility that here in the West, in this nation, 
that we just might lose a generation, that there will be a generation of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that will live in a world that the things that were self-evident to our generation and to the generations that came before us that were introduced to the world by the first Christians, that there may be a generation of people that grow up in the West, that those things are not quite self-evident anymore. The need of the hour demands urgency. Here in our state, we're still the fourth poorest state. We're still top 10 in suicides. We're the fifth least educated. We lead the way in cancer, lowest life expectancy. We're near the top in depression, overdoses. One in four of our children in this state grow up in poverty. And that's why we say, God, give us Kentucky. God, give us Kentucky. And when we look around and we talk about Kentucky, I think it feels like it did to the 11. Improbable, insurmountable, maybe even feels impossible. Can we make a difference? Can, can we change a community? Can we shake a state? Can we change the trajectory of a nation? Can we change the world? We know we know that the church is the hope of the world. We know we're not perfect and we don't have all of our house in order, but we know what the hope of the world is. We know that Jesus is the one solution that can fix many of the problems. It's not government, it's not legislation, it's not politics, it's not a personality, it's not a party. It's Jesus. We are stewards of faith for our generation. And we gotta do something. Because once upon a time, a group of Christians refused to leave the world the way they found it. And my question to you and to me and to us in this series is, what are we gonna do about our once upon a time? Will we do what's hard? Will we achieve what's great? Will we do what's inconvenient? Will we be willing to be made uncomfortable? Will we pray? Will we give? Will we invite? Will we serve? Will we pray big, impossible prayers? Think about this. Once upon a time, against all odds, the church changed the world. By God's grace and with our help, perhaps we can again. Do you believe that, Trevor? On my best days, I do. On my sharpest days, I do. When my perspective is clear, I do. But there's days when it's cloudy there's days when it feels far away. There's days that it feels disconnected. But by God's grace and our help, we can do it again. Towards the end of the first century, and I'll leave it here. By the end of the first century, the church had reached a critical juncture. All of the 11 were dead. They'd given their life to do what Jesus had told them to do. 
Some had traveled as far as India. Some as far away as Arabia. Some to the most northern parts where people were. And by 90 AD, Peter is dead and James is dead and Matthew and Thomas and Bartholomew and Simon and James, the son of Alphaeus. And there's only one left and his name is John. And he's been arrested by the emperor Diocletian and sent to a prison colony on the island of Patmos. And I imagine that he wondered what will be the future of this movement? What will be the future of the church? Will it continue? Will it survive this first generation of believers and leaders? And Jesus gives John a vision on Patmos and John wrote it down. And he said, after this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they were standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And it was Jesus' way of saying, John, it's worked. It's working. It's gonna keep on working. And when John gets ready to finish his revelation that he received from Jesus. Jesus said, I've got one last thing that I wanna say. Tell him, tell him, John, tell who? Tell all that call upon my name and follow me. Tell him, look, I am coming soon. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water, let him come. John, This is what Jesus was saying, I believe. I'm not done yet. So get to it and stay at it. Because John, there's gonna be a new generation that emerges. A new generation of leaders, men, women, children. And they're gonna take the word seriously and they're gonna go and they're gonna spread the invitation to come. And generation after generation after generation after generation has done what Jesus asked them to do. What will we do? What will we do with the way we found it? Because Jesus says, I'm not done yet. I'm not done changing lives. I'm not not done raising dead people back to life. Not done raising beauty from ashes, bringing praise out of heaviness. I'm not done yet. So get, get to it. Stay at it because you have, a, you have a generational opportunity to change the world. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If anybody's here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, and it's urgent. Time is winding down. Your time is winding down. And today is the day. Now is the time. Come on, get involved. Get swept up into this thing called the church. Get swept up into this thing called the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world, including you, that he gave his son, that whosoever believes, including you, whosoever believes will have everlasting life. Receive it today. Just pray, Lord, heavenly father, today I believe I receive your gift of grace. I receive forgiveness. 
because of what Jesus did for me. If you're here today and you've never been baptized and you wanna be baptized in just a moment, today's the day. We've got clothes, we've got towels. There's a sense of urgency, today's the day. Now's the time, just do it, move, come, do it right now. We're gonna stand in just a moment at all of our campuses and we're gonna sing and we're gonna celebrate what Jesus told us to do 2000 years ago. So if you need to respond, do it in just a moment. Father, speak as we sing to you and celebrate change lives in Jesus' name. And everybody said.